Introducing the SD Podcast channel, your one stop source for all types of podcasts. We are always on the look for new podcasts to join our channel. If there is any topic you would like to discuss, contact us now. We can be reached on all social media such as Facebook, Twitter, and or Instagram. You can also contact us by email or leave us a voicemail at 516-570-9248. So make sure to contact us now so you can start your podcast soon. And now, a beauty production presents... The most awesome podcast to ever embrace a pair of headphones, Sarasso and the Beard. And now, here are your hosts, Nick Sarasso and Jose the Talking Beard Rivera. And welcome to Sarasso and the Beard Podcast, Episode 17. I'm Nick Sarasso. And I'm the Talking Beard, Jose Rivera. And we are back after a little bit of a, let's call it a mini vacation. And a lot has happened since our last podcast. We spoke a lot about... Baseball and possible moves when it came to Giancarlo Stanton and Shohei Otani. And sure enough, within the next 24 hours of recording that podcast, Stanton was traded, Otani signed with the Angels, and now here we are. We're going to break down a lot of trades that have gone on in the MLB. It's certainly been inactive within the last 10 days. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you want to talk about the hot stove burning real quick. I, for one, Nick, would like to take credit me and you would like to take credit uh, for getting those uh, the hot stove started. You know, as you said, we talked about Otani, we talked about Stanton, and then with the, not even within 24 hours, one signed the next day, and one was dealt the next day. So I think we deserve full credit for getting this thing started, Nick. Yeah, we certainly get the assist. Yeah. <laughs> and sure enough, we got a lot to talk about in the NFL as we head into Week 16 right before Christmas as well. And it's getting very close to playoff time. Certainly, we're going to be talking about, was that a catch? Do we need to change a little bit of the NFL rules? It seems like we're talking about that almost every other week when it comes to football. But we'll break that down in a little bit. I want to jump into baseball. And let's start with Chantalo Stanton, which was the big trade, especially when both of us are living in New York. You're in Brooklyn. I'm in Staten Island. So, And we're hearing a lot from Yankee fans, the excitement from the Chantalo Stanton trade. The Yankees dealt Stalin Castro a right-handed starter, Jorge Guzman, who played for the Staten Island Yankees all last season, and shortstop Jose Devers. And Jose, your take on the Yankees getting Giancarlo Stanton? Well, first things first, I want the MLB to launch a full investigation into this conspiracy that Derek Jeter dealt Giancarlo Stanton to the New York Yankees for something that was not about like five prospects, didn't involve Clint Frazier or Gleyber Torres, but no. All jokes aside, I don't want to yell conspiracy out there. But seriously, I feel like the Yankees really did kind of get a steal, in a way, in this deal. I mean, the Marlins, it was clear that they wanted to trade Giancarlo Stanton away, right? They had a trade in place to the Cardinals. He vetoed it. They had a trade in place, apparently, to the Giants as well. Stanton vetoed that, too. So now Stanton comes out and says, hey, I only want to go to one of these four teams. Astros, Cubs, Dodgers, Yankees. And if you're the Marlins, you needed to get rid of Giancarlo Stanton. Not because you know he's terrible in any sort of way, but you need to get rid of the distraction that, okay, we can't have Stanton all year long here next year, getting asked questions about ownership. Will he change his mind? Is he happy here? Because that's going to be a daily thing if Stanton is a Marlin in 2018. So I really feel like the Marlins had their backs against the wall and really had no leverage in a way to trade Stanton away as much as they would have wanted to, to some other teams. You go to the Yankees, if I'm thinking Yankees going to Giancarlo Stanton, I'm thinking they got to ask for Torres or Frazier in return, and neither of those guys came back in the trade. That's a win for the New York Yankees. You had to give away Starlin Castro, 
who's been a good fit for the Yankees, but let's be honest here, Stanton, a lot better than Castro. You give up a good young righty in Jorge Guzman, who we both got to see last year. Very talented, good stuff. But we still don't know how he's going to perform past a single-A, double-A level. So he's still a question mark. And even Jose Devers is another question mark, too. So if you're the Yankees, I look at it as a steal. And you're looking at it as a crazy outfield situation where you're going to have Judge and, uh, and Stanton in the same outfield, depending on who the third person is. And you're looking at the middle of the order that could see Stanton, Judge, Gary Sanchez. You can even gr- throw Didi Gregorius in that mix, too. That's going to be a very bad lineup to deal with. That's going to be a good outfield to deal with, too. This is a very powerful team now. And in my opinion, I feel like the Yankees really pulled off the heist so far in the offseason by getting Giancarlo Stanton. Because, by the way, they were also given $25 million by the Marlins to help pay the contract of Stanton as if the Yankees didn't have money already. Yeah, the $25 million I think will come if Stanton takes the uh, deal, the player option deal. So if he does not become a free agent, I think 2020 is his free agent year. So if he was to stay with the Yankees, that's when that $25 million comes into effect relatively. And overall, I mean, this is huge for Yankee fans who already saw their team just missing out on the World Series last season. To come back and to get the NL MVP this year with 59 home runs, mitts that with Aaron Judge, like you mentioned, a guy who also hit 52 home runs this season. It's a very powerful right-handed lineup and one of the crazy stats I saw was when you combine Didi Dorius, Aaron Judge, Darren, uh, Giancarlo Stanton, and Gary Sanchez, you get more home runs than the Boston Red Sox hit all last season. I mean, that's just to put in perspective of how much power the Yankees have this year and how much expectation should be extremely high for the team when it only cost them. What, Stalin Castro affecting their lineup? Jorge Guzman, I really like Jorge Guzman. And when you look at his stats for the Staten Island Yankees, it was phenomenal. But you do have to take into consideration that this is a 21-year-old that his highest level of pitching has been the New York Penn League. So there's still a long time before he really gets to the big leagues, but he has, in my mind, all the talent to be a good MLB pitcher. When it, especially when Guzman hits, what, triple digits almost every other fastball he throws. It, he is a extremely hard-throwing pitcher. And, I mean, we got to watch him all last year. I think he was the best player that the Staten Island Yankees have had in the three years I announced for the team. And he was the best player I think I've seen in the three years in general if you take away, like, MLB-ready players like Alan Craig, who did a rehab assignment. But Gintalo, again, this is one of the top players in baseball. This is The Yankees did not give up much at all to get Gintalo Stanton. And it really is one of those things where how important a no-trade clause is in baseball where you get to choose your own destination and you get to decline any trade you want. Because originally, you know, the Marlins had an ideal trade with the Giants or they had a trade with the Cardinals. And we've seen... The uh, Giants also make a trade for Evan Longoria. The Cardinals make a trade for Marcel Ozuna. So both teams wanted to make trades for big hitters. And Giancarlo not wanting to go in that destination with the no trade clause, pit the team he wanted to go to. And again, New York Yankees get a huge steal in 
my mind on this trade. But, Jose, as we mentioned, there are seven outfield players at the moment for the Yankees. Stanton, Judge, Ellsbury, Clint Frazier, Aaron Hitz, Brett Gardner. And even if you go into the minor leagues, there are still some talented guys in the minor leagues that the Yankees have for outfield positions like Billy uh McKinley from the Aroldis Chapman deal when the Yankees originally traded Chapman to the Cubs. So do you see the Yankees needing to or have to trade an outfielder before the start of the 2018 season? Well, I don't think they have to make a trade before the start of the season. Um, but, or I mean, they don't need to, but it would be nice to, I think, if you're the Yankees. I think now that you have all these excess players, it does give you some leverage to make some other moves. I mean, if they want to look for upgrades in certain positions, like a backup first baseman for Greg Bird, or you know a backup, you know second baseman or some sort, um, you know maybe a stopgap second baseman for uh, before Glaber Torres is ready to come up, or you know if they want to look for a third baseman that's out there that's available, it's not on the free agent market. If they don't bring back Frazier, um, or if they need another reliever or fifth starter, because uh, let's be honest, you're not going to get you're not going to make a mega trade with guys like Gardner, Ellsbury, and all that. There are some rumors that Ellsbury says that he's willing to waive his no-trade clause to go to San Francisco, um, but I don't know if the Giants can really afford Ellsbury's contract at this point with all the money that they're taking on elsewhere as well, too, in other areas. Uh, so it's going to be very difficult to deal some of these guys, but if you're the Yankees, you don't necessarily need to make a trade, but it would be nice because you want to open a door for Clint Frazier at some point this season if he comes up. I still believe Frazier is the future of this outfield, but at the same time, I think Aaron Hicks deserves to start every day because Aaron Hicks has been phenomenal for the Yankees since joining them, and this is where you're going to see Aaron Boone, really, and the Yankee organization probably get creative with that DH spot. There's going to be some days where probably Stanton or Judge is going to be the DH to allow another outfielder to play in this situation. If you're if you're an opposing GM, so if you're not Brian Cashman right now, obviously Gentile Stanton and Aaron Judge you're not going to be able to get. But which outfielder, if you could trade for the New York Yankees, would you be going after the most? I'd probably be going after Aaron Hicks. Um, Ellsbury, too much money, hasn't done enough to prove that you know he was that AL MVP contender back then from the Red Sox before he signed with the Yankees. He had that one huge year and basically got paid for it. Um, Brett Gardner is aging, and I feel like Brett Gardner isn't as good as an outfielder as people think. I think Brett Gardner really benefits from being a Yankee and being at the top of their order and fitting into their system. To me, Aaron Hicks is a guy that's finally figured it out after years of not figuring it out in Minnesota. He's a great defender. He can hit for some power. He's a switch hitter for the Yankees. I mean, yeah, his home runs obviously would take a dip because he's not playing in Yankee Stadium anymore. But I'll take a good defensive outfielder, a good center fielder like Aaron Hicks over everybody else that they have. Because obviously, I'm assuming that Clint Frazier is untouchable for the Yankees. Yeah, I, 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 th- I always like the idea of like, if you're a team that's got a decent amount of open salary cap or a lot of money to go with it, I think a guy like Ellsbury is the right move. And it's only because I think you have a harder time trying to trade for Aaron Hitz. I think Brett Gardner may be slightly better in in long run. But Ellsbury, I think, has the highest reward when healthy. And I think you can even get a prospect or two involved with an Ellsbury deal because you'll be taking on a lot of salary from the Ellsbury contract. So if I'm a GM and I'm looking at it like I'm the 
Chicago White Sox, for example, who don't have a lot of money attached to their team, or the Atlanta Braves, or the Phillies, and I have an open outfield spot, and I need another type of top-tier young prospect to come into my system, I'm looking at the Yankees, and I'm looking to make a trade for Ellsbury to also try and acquire another top prospect. So I think that's a route that Brian Cashman can take. I think that's a route that other GMs can certainly consider. I know Ellsbury may not be a fan favorite wherever destination he goes because a lot of teams will look at it and say, I can't believe we're taking on this much money and it's more damaging the team than helping the team. But I think long term, when you talk about it, we see so many times when certain players get attached to a trade and that's almost like an Ellsbury movie. It's like you're attaching a Clint Frazier with a Jacoby Ellsbury. You're attaching uh, maybe a Chance Adams with a Jacoby Ellsbury, and you're getting the top player in return. So I think that's a route uh, the Yankees could consider or other GMs as well. The Yankees also dealt not fan favorite Chase Headley to the San Diego Padres. He's going back to his former team and getting... Jabari Blash, another outfielder, so the Yankees still have more outfielders on this team. Uh, so it gives them another prospect in Blash. They certainly can go a route where they can keep a lot of the Yankee players that they've had and try and trade Blash. But I think it's a good move that they finally trade Chase Headley off the team. What's your take on Headley being traded away? Well, also going back to the Ellsbury thing, as you said, the only reason I don't name Ellsbury in a possible trade is because, again, it's very it's going to be very hard for him to waive that no-trade clause you know, I doubt if you go to Jacoby Ellsbury, you're going to say, hey, we got you a trade to go to the White Sox. Pack your bags. And he's going to be like, ooh-wee, can't wait to go to Chicago. You know, I doubt Ellsbury is going to, you know, you know, pack as fast as he can to go to the White Sox, so to speak. Um, so you really need to find a scenario, too, where Ellsbury is willing to waive that no-trade clause. But going to Chase Headley, finally the Yankees trade him. And it wasn't for a bag of pine tar or a bag of donuts, like I always like to say. They actually got a legit player from him. And the biggest part is, too, it's a salary dump. The Padres are willing to take on the entire salary of Chase Headley, which if you're the Yankees, that's what you needed. Um, and if, if you're the Yankees, it's a smart move. Why? Because let's say the Yankees do decide to bring back Todd Frazier. Todd Frazier is a better player than Chase Headley. Um, give credit to Chase Headley. I thought Chase Headley played first base kind of on the fly last year very well, even though he's done it before. Um, you know, Headley's had his moments with the Yankees, but he also had his rough spots, too. But I never really stopped him from going out there and playing every day. So, yeah, I know we make fun of him a lot, you know, back on my radio show back then and all that stuff. But Headley did kind of, you know, keep his head down, kept playing while he was with the Yankees. But, hey, this is just a way for the Yankees to get more money back into their pocket. Not be, not needing to pay Headley opens the door for a possible Todd Frazier reunion. I think it allowed them to re-sign CC Sabathia as well, too. So it gives the Yankees just a little bit of extra cash to play with here in case they need a, you know, they need a need somewhere else as well. Yeah, I, this was a move that I think almost like we were talking about with Jacoby Asbury. They traded away Chase Headley. They traded away Brian Mitchell. I think San Diego is a big fan of Brian Mitchell. And that was really the player they wanted to get. Headley, it, it just opens up a corner spot for them. But I, I think his contract is almost up that it's dealable. And this is also a guy that if he's going to any other team, yeah, you don't love it. But Chase Headley did hit one season, 109 RBIs for the San Diego Padres, and at his best time of his career was with the San Diego Padres. Certainly, I think his best days are behind him, but at least Padre fans are are getting a player that they know, that they did really care about and love when he was playing extremely well, and 
maybe a reunion with the team can jumpstart him in the right direction as well. And for the Padres, when you're talking about getting a Brian Mitchell and only trading away Jabari Blash, when you have viable outfield positions already on your team, I think this is a good move for the Padres in a rare sentence to say that Padres, I think you made a good move here. Uh, but let's also go back to the Marlins for a moment because the Marlins, they traded away D Garden. We talked about that on a previous podcast because that was early enough from when we recorded it. But since then, they traded away Giancarlo Santon. They traded away Marcelo Zuna. They, you have guys like JT Realmuto wanting to be traded away from the team. And now Christian Yelich also wants to be traded away from the team. So on a Marlins player standpoint, this has been a real struggle for the team this offseason. Yeah, I mean, hands down. I mean, it's never easy to trade away a couple players, let alone, you know, three of your top five core players, really. I mean, you you talked about it. Stanton, Gordon, Ozuna now gone, uh, leaving Yelich and Riamuto left over. Riamuto asked for a trade. I believe Christian Yelich was supposed to meet with the team president um, to discuss how unhappy he is in this scenario. Uh, it's, it's a tough way anyway you slice it. I know a lot of people are getting mad at Derek Jeter and company um, for doing this again to Miami. But you know what? This is the name of the game. Whenever a new owner takes over, they're going to want to put their own spin on the team. They're going to want to gut the team and start fresh. Um, so is it right that this is happening? Probably not. But what did you expect when any new team takes over? Um, the Marlins were not going to contend next year. The Marlins were not going to win a World Series. Um, so if it means starting fresh one more time to get this franchise back on track, because this is a team that always resets itself like every two to three years, if it had to be done one more time so they could sustain a little bit of success and not re-gut this team in three years, then I'm for, I'm for with it. And I mean, on a Marlins future standpoint, you look at, yeah, they traded away three amazing players. D. Gordon, one of the best second basemen one of the best speedsters in the league, a 300-plus hitter. Marcel Zuna hit 37 home runs, hit over 300. Gentile Stanton, 59 home runs. NL MVP. But they did get a lot of good players in return. I know Jorge Guzman, we talked about him because we saw him a lot. He was ranked number nine in the Yankee system. On the Marlins system, he's ranked number two. Sandy Alcantara... He's ranked number one. He was part of the Marcelo Zuna trade. Matt Norris Sierra, number five. Nick Nevert, part of the D. Gordon trade, number seven on the list. And he even talked about that they have their 14th and 15th prospects are also part of these trades. So the Marlins, four out of their top seven prospects have come from these trades and sits out of their top 15 prospects on their team are, are part of these trades. So... Yet it hurts when you see three amazing, talented players traded away from the Miami Marlins. And it seems like, like we said, it seems to always happen to this team. It seems to always happen to this fan base. But they do have a nice little future coming up for this team in their top seven after all these trades. So I think, is that a positive to look at? It is a positive to look at. And that's what you really need to look at. Now, again, at the end of the day, prospects are just prospects. You know, getting them means nothing. Now it's up to the Marlins to really set them up in a position to succeed. You know, when are we calling these kids up? At what levels are they going to pitch at? How do we move them along? How do we protect them in terms of, you know, career-threatening injuries and all that? So the Marlins still have a lot of work to do when it comes to probably getting even more prospects, but they are on the right track. And if you're a Marlins fan, again, it's not, 
easy to buy into this because it's happened so many times and it hasn't worked so many times. But, I mean, it's a step in the right direction just by getting these prospects. And as you see, you just said it, six out of their top 15 came from trades, meaning they didn't have many to begin with in their original system to brag about. Sometimes you need to make these trades to replenish it and build your future, and that's what they did. So for now. Yeah, and I, the, the one questionable thing for me was when it came to the Giancarlo Stanton trade, they got that Stalin Castro, and Stalin Castro played phenomenal for the Yankees for these last few years. I, but this is a guy that's owed $10 million this year, $11 million next year, and a club option in the following year. It's... Not that it's a bad contract, but it's like if you're talking about a team that's just traded away all different kinds of money off their team. And D. Gordon, when you consider it, he was costing them relatively the same amount, $10 million or $12 million for the next few years. So getting bad Stalin Castro just means you're going to have to trade away Stalin Castro. So they certainly remind me a lot about the Chicago White Sox last season where they dealt every single player. This is... However, the Marlins are doing it for more money purposes. And, you know, they still have Stalin Castro. They could trade Martin Prado. They could trade Justin Bora, although I think that's one of the guys they really should consider keeping. Christian Yelich is most likely going to get traded on a team-friendly contract. JT Realmuto is probably going to get traded. Another guy that's on a team-friendly contract. So the Marlins could be looking at having a wave of prospects coming in. And getting very much under that that money cap that they're trying to get under, but in order to do that, they have to continue dealing players and continue making trades, and it certainly is going to make it a lot more challenging in the National League East among the other teams because you're seeing, hey, the Mons are completely selling, other teams aren't signing players, other teams are just bad, and it gives another team maybe like the Phillies to try and jump in and make as many moves as possible. Uh, But staying with the Florida basis, not only did the Marlins trade away their best player, but the Tampa Bay Rays traded away the face of their franchise and their best player, Evan Longoria, traded to the San Francisco Giants for Denard Spann, Christian Oreo, Stephen Woods, and Matt Croton. Jose, your thoughts on that trade? Well, it was a little bit of a surprising trade. Not so much surprising that the Giants got Longoria, that the Rays dealt Longoria. It was more surprising to see Longoria leaving Tampa Bay. You know, I thought at the end of the day, I thought Longoria was actually going to be the one guy that was probably going to stay there for a long time. But let's just face it, Tampa Bay hasn't done as good a job as they have in the past by staying competitive in the East. And it's time for them to retool as well, too. And sometimes, as you said, for Tampa Bay, this is not a surprise. We've seen it in the past. We've seen them deal their players away before and get things for them. The one time they didn't was for Carl Crawford. They actually decided to let him stay and, uh, and finish out his contract. Um, but, you know, for Longoria, a very class act, one of my favorite players that's not on a New York team. Um, I loved watching him in Tampa Bay. I mean, the guy took an extremely, extremely team-friendly contract extension. I believe it was, what, eight years for only $100 million? That would have been pocket change the way you could have made if you would have hit the open market uh, when he had to. Um, Evan Longoria... He's very underrated, in my opinion. Definitely one of the top five third basemen in the game. And you don't hear about him a lot because he plays for Tampa Bay. Um, he's just hitting the age of 30, I believe, or he is 30. It's going to be turning 31. Um, but that doesn't concern me. I think defensively he's really good. And you've seen his numbers dip the past couple of years. But I think a lot of that has to do because of the fact he was playing for Tampa Bay. Uh, you know, they're not contending. Not a lot of motivation over there. 
I think you're going to see a different Evan Longoria as he goes to San Francisco. Because why? This is a team that had a terrible year last year, but they're not a bad team. They're getting the second overall pick in the draft. But this team, to me, still has a shot to win the NL West next year if everybody's healthy. You're adding a healthy Evan Longoria to play third base now. The left side of that infield, Brandon Crawford, Evan Longoria. Now, if you want to take it even further than Jack, Joe Panic at second base. That's a strong defensive infield right there alone between those three positions. I love this move for the Giants. Um, they had to give away Denard Span, which Denard Span did play well for the Giants in his tenure there. But hey, you'll take that when you're giving when you're getting a guy like Evan Longoria. This is a guy that's a clubhouse leader. He can hit home runs. He can drive in runs for RBIs. I think it's a very good fit for the Giants to get Evan Longoria. And for Tampa Bay, it's kind of sad to see him go. But you do get a couple of good young players, especially in Christian Arroyo. Um, and for Tampa Bay, it's just time to rebuild anew again. you got to start fresh again. And I wouldn't be surprised if Chris Archer's next. If not now, maybe some point in the deadline. Yeah, this is a move that had to happen because if the Rays did not trade Evan Longoria before the start of the 2018 season or waited till next season, then he would have been a 10-year player, five years spent on the same team, and he has a no-trade clause on his team, uh, on himself. And then it makes it so much more complicated, as you even saw in Carlos Stanton's trade example, to make a trade with a team when a player has a no-trade clause. So they had to really deal him. And, and I like where he's going. You're talking about the San Francisco Giants. Yes, the team finished, like you said, second-worst record in the MLB. They're going to get a top prospect. But you look at the team. Like you mentioned, Joe Panic, Brandon Belt, Evan Longoria, Brandon Crawford, Buster Posey. The outfield's still, in my mind, pretty strong with the Hunter Pence and a few prospects in the outfield. And the Giants are always a team that have a decent amount of money attached to them. When when you consider that they could always make a tr- uh, they could always sign a guy like Jay Bruce or a guy like JD Martinez, I would look at them to go the Jay Bruce route to try and get a left-handed bat in the middle of the lineup because this it very much sounds like a very strong right-handed lineup with Pence, Posey, Crawford, and Londoria. So I think they would really want to go a lefty route instead of a righty. But you know the offensively, this team looks a lot stronger than it has in the past. And even pitching-wise, they still have a top closer. The team features Madison Bumgarner, Jeff Samaggio, Johnny Cueto. Cueto had an extremely off season last year. But if he can bounce back to his normal top self, you're talking about two of the best starters in baseball in Cueto and Bumgarner with a strong starting pitching, even in the back end of that rotation. This could be a Giants team that goes from almost like that Red Sox, where you go from last to first. They could definitely fight in for a playoff spot as well. And You're getting a top player in Evan Longoria and healthy. Yeah, he hit only 20 home runs last season, but he hit over 30 the year prior. And over the last, I think, four years or five years, he has played the most games in the MLB. That's something that a lot of people, I think, forget to attach on Evan Longoria, they view him as this unhealthy player that's constantly on the DL, but he's had the most games over the last few years. So this is a guy you certainly want to trust. He's going to be in that middle of the lineup every single day for you, and that's something I think the San Francisco Giants need to have 
when you consider guys like or always on a DL, like a Hunter Pence or a Denard Span, even Buster Posey's missed uh, time frequently throughout the years. So getting a guy that can play consistent baseball for you is always a positive, especially when it's one of the top players in baseball like Evan Longoria. A little bit of a stranger trade, though. How about the Matt Kemp one? Going back to the Los Angeles Dodgers, as the Atlanta Braves get Adrian Gonzalez, though they released Adrian Gonzalez, Scott Casimir, Brandon McCarthy, Charlie Cooperson, and Cash. And this is one of those strange ones because now the Dodgers most likely are still going to wind up trading Matt Kemp, who still has $43 million on his contract, because of the fact that they have Yasiel Plead, Chris Taylor, Jock Peterson, Enrique Hernandez, and Alex Verdugo, all in the outfield as possible players and Matt Kemp. But the Dodgers in this trade are under the $189 million salary because of this. So this was a huge money cut for the Dodgers. What's your thoughts on this one? I think this is probably one of the dumbest trades I think we've seen <laughs> we've seen in a while because I can just picture sitting a, you know these two teams sitting at the table you know the Braves are like hey we you know well, we don't want Matt Kemp and like the Dodgers are like well we have a bunch of guys we don't want anymore you guys want to swap them sure you know we're not going to keep any of them right that's fine we just don't want them anymore so it's, it's like hey you want to do my dirty work for me and release Adrian Gonzalez since it'll look bad if we do it like I mean I mean at, at that point the Dodgers probably sh- really should have just released you know these people on their own if they were going to do that um and getting Matt Kemp back doesn't exactly benefit them in any way. As you said, they're probably going to flip him anyways or even probably release him if they can't find a trade for him. So to me, the whole trade just doesn't make any sense. I understand the Dodgers are trying to get under the tax threshold, um, but, I mean, it's like trading dirty laundry away for more dirty laundry in return. It just doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I, I want to say I like the move. and uh, Let's take it on. Here's Again, the Dodgers, they get to cut money. They're trying to get under that luxury tax threshold if they can do it. I don't think they can. They still need to trade Matt Kemp in order to add extra money space on their team, especially because the Dodgers are sure to sign somebody, are sure to trade for somebody during the season. So they still have a few more moves in my mind to make in order to get under that salary cap. But for the Braves, I mean, when you're looking at it, you you have a couple starters now in Julio Tehran, Brandon McCarthy, Scott Casimir. Yeah, you you want to hope that they can stay healthy, but you have a ton of starting pitchers, a strong enough lineup in that could be able to win a lot of baseball games. And you're talking about still a very weak division. The Nationals are the best team in that division by far. The Mets have not made a single move. Don't know why. Um, the Phillies are still in that rebuild, trying to compete mode. Atlanta's on that same kind of mindset that it could be the first to the first to the starting line gets the higher jump and all of a sudden takes off. You're in a new stadium, so you want to start winning as quick as you can. And the Marlins are selling everything possible that's not nailed to the ground. So you could be looking at this if you're Atlanta and be like, hey, we do a couple moves this season and we finish third in the division at 72 and 90. They finished third in the division at 72 and 90. Four teams finished under 500. And they could be looking at and say, hey, we could be competing right now for the second spot in our division. And maybe if we beat up on the division well enough this season, possibly jump into a wild card scenario. 
because of how weak the division is. So I, I like the move on a Braves standpoint because it's almost saying to me in my mind, Atlanta is looking at their team and not really in a rebuild mode, but in a mode where it's like we can start winning. We have players now on our team. We have starting pitchers on our team. We already have a good enough lineup that I think Atlanta's going to probably make one or two more moves this offseason and go into this year thinking that, hey, they could make a wild card fight for it. So I like it on an Atlanta standpoint, and even for a Dodger money reasons, it's still not a bad trade in my mind. But like you said, it is a lot of trading contracts nobody wants to another team that doesn't need to take on these type of contracts. But if you're Atlanta, I think it's a good uh, competing mode, and I think it sends a right mindset in a lot of these young players. Any other thoughts on the trade as well? No, I mean, I just can't. You know, I had to, like, refresh the page when I first got the alert for it. I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, Matt Kemp for five players. I was like, what year is this? Uh, I felt like that meme. With the, uh, but, it, yeah, I mean, I just – it was a little puzzling. I couldn't understand the motive. Again, I understand the whole tax threshold thing. And for the Braves, you know, you pick up a couple of good players that you can't hold on to. Um, but I still think the strength of the Braves is going to come from what they have in the farm system right now. Yeah, no, it, especially. They're, you're talking about what? The Braves have the second or best farm system in baseball for the last few years. It, it is what they rely on so often. And, and I think that's what makes it so good for them. Because if you're relying on a farm system, a lot of the time, you're not putting a lot of money onto your team. So you can take these bad contracts of a Brandon McCarthy or a Scott Casimir and drop an Adrian Gonzalez and in the end of the day, still looked like a very strong lineup because of the fact that you have such a strong farm to go with you. Let's go with one more team in the NL East, and that's the Philadelphia Phillies. They traded away Freddie Galvez. It's going to open up a spot at shortstop for J.P. Crawford, who's been one of their top prospects. And in the National League East, there's been top shortstop prospects all over for the last couple of years in J.P. Crawford and Dansby Swanson in Ahmed Rosario, in Trey Turner. So the entire NL East has been dubbed with amazing prospect shortstops, and now J.P. Crawford is expected to be the starter for the Phillies at shortstop next season. But the Phillies also signed Carlos Santana, three years, $60 million. Santana batted two fifty nine last year, 23 home runs, 79 RBIs, and also a career-high 37 doubles. And one of the big standpoints for me sits out of the last seven years, 150 plus games. And the one year he didn't, he had 43 games played. So Santana's the guy that stays healthy for you. But what's your thoughts on the Santana signing? Well, pretty it was surprising, really. And Carlos Santana is one of those guys where, you know, when he hits free agency, he's a good player. Now, he's not a superstar that he was supposed to be as he was coming up. I think we can all agree on that. But he is a good, serviceable player. But you wondered, like, what is his real value, honestly? You know, is, is he, is he going to be a guy who gets that $90 million, $100 million contract? Is he a guy that's going to settle for like a Jay Bruce type deal or a Daniel Murphy type deal where he gets anywhere from 30, 40, 50, you know, even 60 mil? Um, and really, what team does he fit in? Because a lot of people have first basemen, a lot of people already have DHs, or a lot of people don't like to have a permanent DH anymore. And even though Santana has played third in the past, he's not really a third baseman. He's strictly really a first baseman slash DH. The signing for the Phillies really piques my interest, honestly. Because you're looking at a Phillies team who, in terms of on the field, have a lot of good young talent. I love the young shortstop in J.P. Crawford. 
I like Nick Williams out there in the outfield. Aaron Altair can still be a very good player for them. I like where the Phillies are going in terms of bringing these young kids along. I like Michael Franco, but bringing in a guy like Carlos Santana. You know, when you're rebuilding, and people get confused in this too, you don't always need to have nine of the youngest players on the field. You can add a veteran in there, you know, sprinkle a veteran here, a veteran there. And so by bringing in Carlos Santana, you pick up a cleanup hitter or a fifth hole hitter that's going to anchor that lineup and really allow the young kids to flourish around him while he does his thing. In Citizens Bank Park, you know Santana's going to be able to hit some home runs. So you could pencil in Santana, in my opinion, for 20 home runs this year. I don't know about an RBI total, but I can, I would, I would always, I'll take the over. If you give me an over under 20 home runs this year for Carlos Santana, I'll take 20 as he's a Philadelphia Philly this year. One thing that does surprise me is they bring in Santana. So what does that mean for Tommy Joseph? Um, are they giving up on him? And it also allows Reese Hoskins, who's playing some first base towards the end of the year, to move to the outfield now, too. Don't forget about him, too. Great young player for the Phillies as well, too. The only knock I have against this deal is I feel like the dollar amount is a little bit too high. You said it yourself, $60 million for three years. We're talking about $20 million per. To me, Carlos Santana is not a $20 million player annually. Um, but it is a good move for the Phillies. They, I think he's a good fit for Philadelphia in terms of where they are now in their rebuild. Here's the bit thing I don't get. Like a veteran standpoint, I get it. Charles Santana has been in base. He's been in the MLB for eight years now. And if you take him out of the roster for a moment, the highest active infielder, outfielder, catcher is Cesar Hernandez who's been in the big leagues since 2013. That's the longest active MLB veteran in the field, ignoring the pitchers for a moment. So you you add a veteran presence in Carlos Santana, who hit, as we said, 23 home runs last year. But as you mentioned, Tommy Joseph hit 22 home runs last year. And he hit it in way less at-bats than Cesar, than Carlos, Carlos Santana. I'm getting that one confused. Wow. <laughs> hey, man, we're not yeah. all the same. You can't just blend our names together. Yeah, it's, it's bad at times. Who did in less than 100 less at-bats, he hit one less home run than Carlos Santana. Uh, I, I don't understand why giving up on Tommy Joseph like this. This is a guy that cost you less than a million dollars on your team who hits just as many home runs, he hits less average, yeah, he's going to strike out a little bit more, but I, I feel like you're giving up on a player way too fast. As you said, Rice uh, Hopkins, I mean, he looks phenomenal. He's going to be in left field. That's a guaranteed starting position spot. The outfield looks really strong in Abdul Herrera, Aaron Othar, Hopkins, his catcher's strong, the infield is great. At first base was their one question mark whether they wanted to go with Tommy Joseph or go with a little bit more of a guaranteed player. And I feel, you know, if you went with a different choice and you went with starting pitching and you put that $20 million all of a sudden for a U Darvish or $25 million on a U Darvish or Jake Arrieta or an Alex Cobb or a Lance Lynn or you try and go after two of those players, all of a sudden we're talking about the Phillies in a whole other mindset because then they have two stops two top starting pitchers, strong starting pitchers with the rest of their core around them, a good enough bullpen that should be able to get the job done. That's a talented team all of a sudden, and it's quickly done. Three years, $60 million to Carlos Santana, I don't think is a big enough effect on your team, and I still think you need to add one or two top starting pitchers to really cement your team into that, okay, we're competing again 
and we're a good team, and we're looking at a wild card, or we're going to fight for the division, and we're much improved from last season. This is a move that it's like, okay, you get a slight upgrade from Tommy Joseph, and it costs you $19.5 million more for that upgrade. It doesn't seem like the right move to me, and I think that the Phillies are ultimately going to have to trade away Tommy Joseph, because he's just going to be stuck on a bench for the next three years, and that's really not where you want to put a guy who's was just coming up into the baseball and just getting into the big leagues and I think can be a viable player or a team that needs an extra DH, that needs a first baseman that can play some uh, that can play occasional first base or can play occasional DH. I think you could see him getting dealt in the American League, especially to like a team like an Oakland Athletics that really love that low salary type players and Joseph has the power to hit it out of the park in the Coliseum. So I think that's what you'll see in the end, but I, it's a very questionable move for me with Carlos Santana because I feel that the Phillies had more necessary needs and they're not filling it. Instead, they're going with the first baseman. What about uh, the Angels? Shohei Otani signs with the Angels. Kind of seems like he was going with the Mariners. Instead, he goes with the division rival, the Los Angeles Angels. Zach Cozart signs with the Angels, and the Angels trade for Ian Kingsler. Jose... Are the Angels in ready to compete in the AL West? Yeah, I mean, I think they are. I mean, the the bad news about Otani is that it came up afterwards that he had a torn ulnar um, that showed up in his physical. So honestly, we don't know what that means for Otani going into this year. Um, so he's a big question mark. But offensively, they are upgraded now. I mean, they signed a guy like Zach Cozart, who you know he's not going to impress you. You know, he's not a mega All Star superstar player, but Zach Cozart still is a decent player. Um, obviously he's not going to be playing shortstop. He's going to transition over to third base because they do have a uh, Dralton Simmons. Uh, you bring in a guy like Ian Kinsler, who's a little bit on the older side. Um, but he can still hit it a little bit. And then you still have guys like Mike Trout out there and they still have Justin Uptons here too. Um, to me, the angels were a team last year where they had a chance to get the second wild card spot. They just didn't have enough. And when they made that trade for Justin Upton, it did raise some eyebrows, but in my head, I thought they got Justin Upton, not really for last year. They got him for 2018 and they went with an eye on trying to improve for 2018. This is a team that really surprised a lot of people with their pitching last year. A lot of their younger pitchers and their bullpen relievers really stepped up their game last year, which is why they were in it for so long. And again, as Trout, and you add a couple of role players like backup like Justin Upton, Albert Pujols, seem to bounce back and have a nice year last year as well too. You could be looking at a very improved Angels team. And once again, it's going to come down to can these players that they brought in really contribute? Because we've seen this before, right? We've seen them bring in Josh Hamilton. We've seen them bring all these megastars like, you know, um, C.J. Wilson. And then it doesn't pan out. The question for the Angels is, will it pan out this time? And can those pitchers, who took a huge step forward this uh, last year, can they take another step forward this year without taking three steps backwards? You know, this is an Angels team where we spoke about it. They really needed to make an improvement at third base. They do that with Zach Cozart. They even added a second baseman in Ian Kinsler, who's on a one-year $11 million deal before Hill had into free agency. And this is an Angels team that finished second in the division at 80-82, and 82, under 500, fighting out for a playoff spot, just missed it by five games to the Minnesota Twins for that second wild card spot. And let's keep in mind, Mike Trout spent a lot of time on the DL. That if Mike Trout's healthy, the Angels probably 
make it to the playoffs. The Angels probably beat out and win 86 baseball games this season instead of 80 because they'll have Mike Trout. And those are the couple moves I'm looking at. You get Otani, you have Zach Tozart, Ian Kinsler. You're going to have a healthy Mike Trout again. This is going to be an extremely, extremely right-handed lineup. But a lot of good right-handed hitters. And I think that's what it's a little bit different than times in the past where we see a right-handed power lineup that just can hit home runs. But this is a different. Ian Kinsler's much more of a contact hitter. Zach Gozart is an extreme contact hitter. Mike Trout, the best hitter in baseball. You have Albert Pools, who for a long time was the best hitter in baseball. Cole Calhoun is a, a good contact hitter. So I don't think this is a team that's going to swing for the fences every at-bat, but they're just going to try and do almost like that Kansas City Royal mentality of just trying to get a base hit here and a base hit there and a base hit there. And maybe just one big shot changes it all, but it's going to be a constantly an offensive hitting team that just continues to hit the ball onto the field. And I like the moves that the Angels have made. It's a lot of righties, but it's contact hitting righties, and that's something that I can get behind and say, hey, this could be a very strong team going into the 2018 season, especially in a division where 80 and 82 finished second in the AL West. Seattle's an improved team, but teams like Texas and teams like the Oakland Athletics are really teams that are falling off. And this gives you a great chance if you're the Angels to try and beat up on the rest of your division. Most likely you won't be able to catch the Houston Astros, but you can catch a wild card spot and then come to that big game. Maybe Otani is throwing in the wild card game for you or it's someone else that like a, a Parker who had a great rookie season. So I don't think the Angels are done. I think they still need a pitcher or a top starter and there's plenty in the open market right now for the MLB, but the Angels certainly are making all the right moves in my mind. Jose, the wave of unsigned free agents. I I mean, we're at the almost at the end of December. And J.D. Martinez, Jay Bruce, Eric Hosmer, Lorenzo Cain, Mike Moustakis, Jake Arrieta, Hugh Darvish, Dwight Holland, Wade Davis, Alex Cobb, Lance Lynn, all the best free agents in the MLB this year are all still free agents. Are you surprised to see this, that everyone is still really a free agent? Yeah, I mean, I really am. And, and you know, every year you'll see one player, you know, they'll they'll last on the market till January. There was that one year, I believe Prince Fielder signed in, what, February that year? Um, but usually that only happens to one or two players. I mean, you're talking about, you just named what, five or six guys that are still free agents and literally Christmas is on Monday. We're a week away from 2018. I mean, I don't know what's going on here. Uh, I mean, a lot of people are citing the fact that next year's free agent class is like, like a mega super free agent class. So a lot of people are trying to save money for that. But we talked about it yesterday between us. I mean, but even then you still have a lot of players that are so, that are unsigned I don't know if a lot of these guys are going to find homes by the time the 2018 spring training starts. I mean, it seems like teams are too busy trying to get under the tax threshold. They're trying to save for 2018. They're trying to go for cheaper options first. That a lot of these guys are getting snubbed on the market. And I just don't know. Like, I'm not optimistic that all these guys are going to find homes by the time spring training starts. I'm not sure if it's maybe the, the compensation picks that they have to do away with. Um, maybe those things are, are factoring in. But there's really no reasons why guys like Arietta should be signed, uh, Martinez should be signed. Like those guys should be gone already off the market. 
Um, I'm not sure what the holdup is. Not a lot of insight is going out there into the, the, the sports world in terms of detail. Um, but it is not only surprising, but a little bit concerning that this many guys do not have jobs going into 2018. And, and you're talking about it's not like, I, I mean, there were years. I mean, and these are not these are not bench guys. These are not no. these are not fit starters. These are not backup players. These are frontline all stars. Most of them are borderline all stars or multi-time all stars. Jake Arrieta, you Darvish. I mean, you can have questionable thoughts on them as they've struggled at certain points, but these are two of the top starting right-handed pitchers in baseball. Alex Cobb, Lance Lynn. Yes, they've had Tommy John surgery, but two of the most consistent starters in baseball. Greg Hall and Wade Davis, we saw them play phenomenal closing this season. Martinez, 45 home runs. Jay Bruce had a phenomenal year. Eric Hosmer, Lorenzo Cain, Mike Vistachos, we saw them all win a championship. We saw the 300-plus hitters. We saw defensively gold-glove players for consistency. These are phenomenal players, and it's amazing how all of them. It, you, it would be, it would be okay if it's like, all right, Alex Cobb is still a free agent. Well, that made sense because he had the uh, number one pick attached to him in the qualifying offer, compared to a U Darvish who didn't. But this is one of those situations where every single one of these players is still a free agent, and it becomes one of those questionable moments where. Is it because of the salary cap? Is it because of this idea that no team wants to pass the tax, the tax threshold? They want to get under it. That way, they can go all out in the following year when they have a much significantly lower tax payout that they have to cover because they went over the one hundred eighty-nine million dollars cap. So it still doesn't make sense to me because there is just plenty of teams that could use a player or two of these type of players caliber and they have especially the money to do so. So it's extremely surprising for me when you're talking about like a Hugh Darvish who's one of the best right-handed pitchers in baseball or J.D. Martinez, one of the best power hitters in baseball. I think he had the third most home runs last season at 45 when you combine how he did for the Diamondbacks and how he did for the Detroit Tigers and we saw what he did against the left-handed pitchers when he played for the Diamondbacks. He, he raked against lefties. So if you need that left-handed hitter, J.D. is that player that can hit against lefty pitching. So it's extremely surprising for me. But, Jose, which player do you think signs first with the team? Uh, to me, I think it's Jake Arrieta. Um, I think you're going to see pitching fall first, the first domino to fall, and I wouldn't be surprised if it's you, Darvish, instead. But I think you're going to see Jake Arrieta sign his contract first um, relatively soon. Um, to me, especially since pitchers usually report to spring training first, um, you're going to see the pitchers start to fall first. A lot of those guys are going to get signed so they can get into spring training as soon as possible. Um, so I think Arietta, if not Darvish, uh, but I think you'll see Arietta or Darvish sign first before any of the guys from Kansas City or even J.D. Martinez, honestly. I'm, I'm, I think it's going to go Eric Cosma. I, I know Scott Boris is asking for a ton with Eric Cosma, but... This is just, a, I think when you talk about like the Boston Red Sox, they need a first baseman. They need a viable option there. Eric Cosmer is the best first baseman available. I think he's even the best first baseman when you consider next year's free agency. And I think that's the right route for the Boston Red Sox. It's almost a response move. After the Yankees have gone out and they're talking about trying to get Garrett Cole, and you're talking about... Jim Carlos Stanton going to the Yankees and all these moves that you're seeing the Yankees making 
I think if you're the Boston Red Sox, not that you have to make a red alert move, but an Eric Hosmer signing would be almost that deep breath where you're saying, okay, we still have a team that's going to compete out there. We still have some top players among our team. And Eric Hosmer is one of the top first basemen. Very underappreciated first baseman in the league when you talked about a gold lover, a 300-plus hitter, and he's consistently going to hit you 20-plus home runs each season. And it's going to be in a very hitter-friendly park like, the, like Fenway. I think that's even a bigger bonus, and I think Hosmer could be the first guy to sign with the team because it seems like a lot of times we're seeing a lot of first basemen go right now. Uh, since we're on our final baseball one, let's just give it to you. What was strangest move you've seen this offseason so far? Well, for me, the strangest move I've seen, honestly, was probably the trade between the Dodgers and the uh, the Braves. I mean, that was the only one where I really scratched my head at. You know, every other trade that's happened has made sense. I can understand the reasoning behind it. Um, every other signing has made sense. I understand the reasoning behind it. But really, that trade, and I mean, and I get it now, but really, that trade is the one that had me scratching my head the most. Like, why is this happening? <laughs> I don't understand why, but I mean, they had their reasoning, but that was, to me, one of the weirdest moves so far in the offseason. For me, I'm going to take the Matt Adams signing. Uh, Matt Adams, I mean, he had over 20 home runs last season. He had good numbers and signs a one-year, $4 million deal to be a backup for his baseman with the Washington Nationals. I think that's a really surprising that the market was so low on Matt Adams that nobody wants to consider him to be a viable DH. Nobody wants to consider him being a starting uh, starting first baseman for the team. I, I'm surprised to see him go for such a low salary and to be relegated to a backup position when this guy has clearly all the capability to be a starter on many teams at first base. So that was that was a strange move for me. All right, it's week 16 in the NFL, so let's jump into some fun NFL topics, and let's start with the Philadelphia Eagles. Philadelphia Eagles without Carlson Wentz. Nick Fultz had to take the helm at the starting quarterback with Wentz out for the season against the New York Giants. Foles threw four touchdowns for 237 yards in 24 out of 38 pass attempts. This is a guy that's always had a strong winning record when his coach is an offensive-minded coach. Jose, are the Eagles still one of the top teams without Carson Wentz? I don't know if they're one of the top teams. I think they'll still do well without him. Um, It's hard to argue that the Eagles are better than the Vikings now, honestly, without a guy like Carson Wentz, right? Because now we're talking about two backup QBs taking the helm in Case Keenum and now Nick Foles. One thing that's very interesting and I want to point out, though, is I was listening to Colin Cowherd the other day on um, on Fox Sports, and he threw up a graphic with um, Nick Nick Foles' numbers when he was with the uh, with the Rams when they were still St. Louis. I believe he was there last year too when he, when they were still LA. But when Nick Foles with St. Louis, and then with every other coach that he's had when he was in Philadelphia, and the numbers are really a really I mean a flip of the coin. When he was with the Rams, Nick Foles' numbers were terrible. When he's with the Eagles. Foles' numbers are off the charts good, and that's under three different head coaches, and Andy Reid, Doug Peterson, and I forgot the other one as well, too. Chip Kelly. But, yeah, Chip Kelly. So even with Chip Kelly, his numbers were better. So really, the point that Colin Cowherd was trying to make was that it might have just been the Jeff Fisher effect. Now, if you recall, who else had Jeff Fisher as their first year as a QB last year? Jared Goff. Did Jared Goff play well at all last year? 
Not really. What happens this year? A new offensive-minded head coach, and Jared Goff is taking the league by storm. So it really could just be that Jeff Fisher is not exactly a QB-friendly quarterback. And Nick Foles played well in his first game last Sunday. And I still think Nick Foles could still be a starting QB on plenty of other teams as well, too. So just because Carson Wentz goes down doesn't mean it doesn't mean that the Eagles are done, they're dead, they're not going to win anything. I just think the percentage of them of likely to win does go down, though, because I still think the Vikings are a better team now if Carson Wentz is sitting on the bench. Nick Foles is not Carson Wentz, but Nick Foles can still win some ball games for you, though. I just don't see, I don't have the Eagles as a Super Bowl favorite as they did a couple weeks ago when Carson Wentz was healthy. They should still be fine, even with Nick Foles, but I can't see them beating teams like potentially the Minnesota Vikings if they were to make it that far. I mean, it, the Eagles are a, a win away from clinching the first round by. And from clinching home field advantage for the entire playoffs, which could be the biggest point of it when you're talking about playing a Minnesota Vikings team or a Los Angeles Rams or any of the three NFC South teams at the moment. Uh, you certainly have a great advantage when you're talking about having home field. Uh, you know, I don't know if they're still one of the best teams. I think teams like the Vikings... The Steelers, the Patriots were all considered better than the Eagles, even with the Carson Wentz at the moment. But this is still one of the best teams in the NFL. This is still one of the best offensive teams. Jay looks good. You still have a lot of top players that Foles can throw to this season. And, and, I mean, yes, the Eagles gave up 29 points to the Giants last week, but the defense is still strong enough and a good core to get the job done. I, I still like the Eagles that they can... You know, win a couple of games, they're not a first-round elimination. And I don't see them the same way like the Raiders without Derek uh, Carr last year where you're seeing, okay, you just can't win with this backup. The Foles can certainly do the job. And, I, I, again, I saw the same stat like you did. With an offensive-minded coach, Nick Foles does extremely well compared to a defensive-minded coach. And the Eagles have that offensive-minded coach with them that – it's going to be interesting to see how the Eagles do this week against the Raiders. Another weaker team defensively, but I think that's almost going to be the confidence setter when it comes to Nick Foles and how he does for the rest of the season compared to when he gets that bye week for the playoffs. The Pittsburgh Steelers played the New England Patriots. Patriots would win the game 27-24, to but the main talk of the game was in that final, what, 30 seconds, where Jesse James reaches the ball out towards the end zone, hits the ground, and not ruled a catch. And Mike Pierre, who's always on Fox when it comes to those type of plays, said, if you're going to, on the Twitter, he said, if you're going to the ground, you have to hold on to the ball when the ball hits the ground. Going to the ground trumps lunging, reaching, trying to get extra yards, or scoring a touchdown, even a little... Des Bryant point he made on that as well, but Jose, I mean, I would get into the point that does anybody know what a catch is, or do we have to change the rules? Like, is this getting a little bit too far? Well, first things first, I like how you called it Dutch Twitter. That might have been one of the best things I think Dutch I ever heard. <laughs> Dutch Twitter. Yeah. Dutch Twitter. <laughs> All right, but second, second thing, watching really too much Ohio here. State football. <laughs> The second thing is, I love that every time we have to say Jesse James, I think of, immediately think of Team Rocket. 
from Pokemon. Third thing, uh, you know, honestly, the thing with, the thing is with the catches. Again, I'm going to reference Colin Cowherd here. If you could tell him a big fan, you know what he said the other day was they were right. It wasn't a catch based on the silly rule that we have in place by the NFL now, right? If you go by the rule book, that's not a catch. We're all looking at it. It's a catch to us because, honestly, at the end of the day, what really is a catch? As long as you have both hands on it, right? As long as you have full control on it as you're going to the ground. And that's what he had. Now, the NFL has some silly rule where if there's, like, you have to have full control, if there's a little bit of movement, it's not a catch, all this other stuff, there really is no clear definition of what a catch is. And I think during the offseason – um, whatever, whether it's the players union or the officials union, some sort of group has to come together and decide on this because stuff like this is kind of ruining the game of football. You know, it ruins the endings to games because look at that. That's a huge moment in that game. We're talking about the difference between getting the number one seed and getting the number two seed in the playoffs. We're talking about the difference between having home field advantage for the AFC championship game in your building as opposed to the opponent's building. These two teams can very well meet each other again in the AFC Championship, and instead of it being played in Pittsburgh, it might be played in New England. That's a huge thing to be on the line there between these two teams. It's a huge game, and we have it end in that way, with uncertainty. Did the Patriots get a steal there? Did the Pittsburgh uh, Steelers get screwed? Now we don't know. So one thing in the offseason I want to see is I want to see them get together, and let's define these rules a little more. That way, a first grader can tell what a catch is and what a catch is not. Because there's no reason why we should have all these complicated rules for a simple gesture of, did he catch the damn ball? This is just... I mean, you'd think they would have made the change and understand it a little bit better when it came to Des Bryant. Because if you're making a football-like move, and I get it, going to the ground is the basis of their decision. But... Every single player on that field, offensive, defensive, on the sidelines, knew that ball was a catch, knew that play was a touchdown, knew he scored a touchdown. The only thing that didn't know was the rule book. And that, to me, is a little bit too far because, especially when you're talking about the end zone, not even just on a different yard line, but on the, in the end zone, you can rush a football with a running back, jump in the air, leap with the ball, hold the ball over a line, and that ball gets swatted, and it will be ruled a touchdown every single time. So to me, again, this is why I didn't view this any more than what it was, a simple touchdown. Because he did exactly that. He's got the ball past the line of the end zone for a touchdown, whether he's standing up or whether he's going at the ground, it's the same rule that would have been called for a running back right there and there. So that I don't get, where you're taking it and it's clear as day touchdown. And it's going to cost the Steelers possibly the number one seed in the AFC. And that could be the difference maker when you talk about the Patriots, who I think are 17 and like three at home in the playoffs compared to like three and four or four and three on the road in the playoffs with Tom Brady. So uh, there's just, you know, I, I don't agree with the pl- call. I get it what the rule, but says, but again, I'm going to ha- say it. They have to change the rule. You have to make sure that everybody knows where the catch is and not needing to go to, uh, 
instant replay to make it even more challenging to figure it out. Because this is this is where it gets too silly. And yeah, we're nitpicking, but on without instant replay, I think everyone views that as a catch. On instant replay, when you really, 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 really slow it down to just watch the ball pop out as he hits the ground, even though he's crossed the line to get into the end zone, it should still be ruled a touchdown at the end of the day. But how much of an advantage does this give the Patriots now? It, it, it could get them into the Super Bowl again because of how well they play at home compared to every other team that travels to them. Staying with the AFC, though, currently... The Tennessee Titans are 8-6. The Buffalo Bills are 8-6. And, and the Ravens are 8-6. With the Ravens being the odd man out right now, missing the playoffs, currently sitting with 7th, as the Titans and Bills have 5th and 6th. The Titans, if they win this week, I believe they clinch a playoff spot. But looking at their schedule, of all three teams, which two teams have the best chance of making a playoff? So far, the Tennessee Titans will have to play... The 10-4 Rams and the 10-4 Jaguars. The Bills at 8-6 will have to play in New England, who are 11-3, and, and at Miami, who are 6-8, while the Ravens have to play the 3-11 Colts and the 5-9 Bengals, both of those being home games for the Ravens. So you have the Titans and Ravens both having two home games and the Bills having road games. Which two teams most likely get into the playoffs in your mind? You know, I'm probably going to have to roll with the Ravens and the Bills, surprisingly. Um, you know, I look at the Ravens' schedule, and obviously that's a, that's an easy 2-0 wins for for the Ravens. There's no reason why Baltimore should not be beating the uh, the Bengals and the Colts. To me, that's a lock. I think the Ravens, you're looking at them finishing with, with a 10-6 and record, right? So now you're talking about the Bills and Titans, and I'm sorry, but this is where the, the schedule really is not in their favor. Those are four really tough games, two for the Bills, two for the um for the titans especially for the titans though you're talking about the rams and then the jaguars um you know those are two teams that are they already clinched their spot in the playoffs so they may be taking it easy they may not and if you don't think the jaguars are gonna be motivated to kick the titans a division rival out of the playoff picture i think you're crazy so uh, i think just the bills they're playing with a lot more confidence right now they've had a couple of impressive wins over the past couple of weeks I think they're going to push the Patriots around a little bit. I don't think they're going to beat New England, but I do think they have enough confidence to try and give them a run for their money, and they probably do think they can beat them. Um, so give me the Ravens for sure, because those should be two very easy wins for Joe Flacco and crew. And just give me the Bills over the Titans, because right now I feel like the Bills have a lot more confidence than the Titans do going into their matchups. Yeah, obviously, I think only one team is going to go 10-6, and six, and that's the Baltimore Ravens. They should easily be able to beat the Colts and the Bengals, Two home games for the Ravens. Not much competition there. Uh, from there, I think you're looking at the Titans and Bills, both of them looking at possibly a 9-7 and seven record. I think the Bills are going to lose to the Patriots this week. And, and, and then you're looking at them winning against the Dolphins. And the Dolphins could even look at this and saying, hey, this is our division rival. We get a chance to knock them out of the playoffs and trying to play as hard as they can against the Bills to even try and beat the Bills there. But Tennessee... Although they got two tough matchups, most likely they'll split it, one and one I, I kind of see the Jads saying Week 17 to not playing Blake Bortles and the rest of their team because they'll have just clinched a playoff spot. And I think Tennessee's able to just get the win there and get into the playoffs at 9-7 and, and that they'll have the tiebreaker over 
the Buffalo Bills to get to the playoffs. So I have the Ravens and I have the Tennessee Titans, but certainly the Ravens, even though that they're sitting as the odd man out at the moment, they have to be the team that has all the biggest smiles in the world because they look at the teams they're playing compared to the teams that the Tennessee Titans and the Buffalo Bills have to play, and they're loving their matchups in order to get to the playoffs. And again, Joe Flacco, again, I know he's Joe Flacco. I know he hasn't had the best of the season, but when push comes to shove in those playoff-like moments, I usually like him in those scenarios. He always seems to get the job done. The defense is He's, the Ravens have the better defense when you talk about between the Tennessee Titans and the Buffalo Bills. They should easily be able to get to the playoffs at 10-6 and six and even be the fifth seed at that point, looking at possibly playing the Kansas City Chiefs. And so I, I, I like the Ravens in this matchup to try and easily get to the playoffs, and I think the Bills are sitting at the odd man out. The fact that they're 8-6 and six when they've played Nathan Peterman for a game and all other silly moves is ridiculous as well when you think of the Buffalo Bills. The Seattle Seahawks played the Los Angeles Rams last week, Jose, and the Rams, can we go with annihilate as the word? 42-7 to against the Seahawks. The Rams destroyed the Seahawks. I mean, it was 34 nothing at halftime. Yeah, to final it out, they had a safety in the fourth quarter to make it 42-7. to you look at this game, and we've talked about the Seahawks for so many years being one of the best defensive teams, having a strong run game, but overall, the Rams, phenomenal defense, better run game with Todd Gurley, Jeff, Jared Elf has looked incredible this season, they have the better wide receivers, uh, the only good wide receiver on the Seahawks is really Doug Baldwin have the Seahawks almost like pass the torch. And you also talked about like on a, a money standpoint, the Seahawks don't even have much money compared to the Rams who have a ton of ca- salary space going into next year as well. So does it almost seem like the Seahawks are passing the torch to the Rams as the dominating team in the division? Well, I'm not going to, I'm not going to say they're passing the torch, so to speak. I think you are seeing though, the Seahawks not really prepared themselves for the season a proper way. I don't think anybody was really anticipating the the Rams to come in and do what they've done this year, right? We are all expecting a two-team race between the Seahawks and the Cardinals again. Um, but when you look at it, though, I mean, this is a team that relied a lot on Russell Wilson. They relied a lot on their defense. They didn't really help the running game this year, especially ever since Marshall and Lynch left. They never really give um, you know Russell Wilson big targets to throw to. So I feel like I don't think they're passing the torch, so to speak, but I do think the Seahawks do have some work to do in trying to bring some guys in. One, maybe a big, you know, a better wide receiver, a go-to target that Russell Wilson can go to, or maybe even a better running game to help Russell Wilson out as well, too. Um, the defense looks a little bit like a step slower. That's what concerns me a little bit. Um, but again, they had a lot of injuries this week, too. You know, Richard Sherman's still not playing. They have a lot of injuries to their backfield. And when you see a lot of injuries to that Legion of Boom, obviously it's not Legion of Boom anymore. Um, so, yeah, they do look a little bit of a step slower, but I'm not ready to say that the Seahawks are passing a torch just yet. I just think the Rams are having a phenomenal year, and the Seahawks really need to equip themselves better going into next year if they want to take this division back. But it's right now the the Rams own this division. It's going oh, to, of course. It's going to be the Seahawks are going to have to make a lot of moves to put themselves back in, I think, division hunt come next year because of the fact that the Rams just – a lot of money that they have open. 
there's no run game for Seattle, and you're talking about Todd Gurley being one of the best running backs in the league for the Rams, I like the Rams on how they've looked this year, and this is a team that extremely up and coming this season, and could be looking to dominate the NFL and that NFC West for the next few years as well. Yeah, I mean, well, when you say passing the torch, I'm not, I'm not saying that the Rams can't take the division or it's not theirs already. Um, what I'm trying to say though is that usually when I think of passing the torch, I think of a team wilting, getting old, and basically having to retool things. I think the Seahawks can definitely grab the torch back next year if they make the right moves. But again, it's on them to make those moves. Definitely so. It's going to be interesting. And it's certainly going to be a real tough moment now with the Seattle uh, Seahawks losing that game against the Rams to try and make the playoffs because they're at 8-6 and, and they are very far off from making the playoffs right now. A team that's out of the playoffs, though, is the Green Bay Packers, who are 7-7 seven and seven as they're going to play the Minnesota Vikings this week. And Aaron Rodgers back on the IR. He came back last week, played against the Carolina Panthers. Didn't have the greatest of games throwing three interceptions in that game and possibly just coming in uh, too soon in a situation where maybe they could have just held him off. But th- that was the playoffs for the Green Bay Packers. If they lost that game, they were going to be out of a playoff scenario. They needed to win. They lost 31-24 to to the Carolina Panthers. Aaron Rodgers, 26-45, of three touchdowns, three interceptions, 290 yards. He didn't look his best of stuff. Running the ball, he did it pretty well, though. Sits of 43, but Aaron Rodgers back on the IR. Uh, the Dream Bay Packers in trouble when you consider the team outside of Aaron Rodgers. Oh, of course. Without a doubt. I mean, you saw it. I mean, Aaron Rodgers comes back. He's not even, First of all, Aaron Rodgers is not 100% healthy. Um, they can clear him. They can say whatever they want. They can say he was healthy, but I truly believe Aaron Rodgers was not 100% healthy going into that game either way. And, and you said it yourself. The season was do or die based on that game alone for Green Bay. We talked about it a couple of podcasts ago about how bad they rely on him. The guy comes back, doesn't have that good of a game, and all of a sudden they're out of playoff contention again. I mean, this team lives and dies on Aaron Rodgers, which is not a good thing going forward, honestly, for the Green Bay Packers. Yeah, the, I mean, Jordy Nelson hasn't looked great. They never really have a run game. They can't protect Aaron Rodgers. He got sat three times in the game, and it seems like he's always getting banged around or he's always having to scramble at times and that Hail Mary passes. The defense isn't even that good this season, and it's never really been a consistency that has worked well for the Packers. And, you know, there's a lot of issues with the team health-wise. I'm certainly concerned in, when it comes to the Packers on how well they can do, especially without Aaron Rodgers. They're great with Aaron Rodgers. He he makes the team better 100%, but he may be the only reason why this team is winning at times compared to you know most quarterbacks. They don't have to do as much as Aaron Rodgers. They don't rely as much because they have better teams, and that's not the same with the Green Bay Packers. So, I want to take this time to run through uh, the Wheat Sits team games. So we're just going to go through them as well. And we'll start with, uh, on Saturday's game, the Indianapolis Colts 3-11 take on the Baltimore Ravens. Ravens even a spread favorite of 13.5 points. So, Jose, who do you have in this one? Give me the Ravens by murder. Next. 
No, I mean, in all seriousness, no. I mean, this would be a game that the Ravens. I mean, the Ravens have to win, right? If you're if you're if you're Baltimore, your logic is we have our 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 fate is in our own hands, right? Destiny is in their own hands. They want to make the playoffs. Ideally, they know if they win two games, they're probably in the playoffs. Um, you know, because you know, you just know the Titans and Bills are not going to win two in a row because of who they're facing, right? So if you're the Ravens, you're thinking, hey, we just win our two games and we're in. And they couldn't have asked for two better opponents. I do think the Bengals are going to try and play a little bit harder that last week to try and make sure the Baltimore Ravens don't get in. But as for this week, you should be able to see the Ravens run over the Colts. Yeah, this is... I'm taking a spread on the Ravens. They're a better team, and I think one of those situations where they they don't normally play down to their opponents in a scenario. A home game against the Colts, this is a gimme. I think they go out and win this game easily. And they're not going to score much, but I easily can see a 24-7 to win, 24-6 to win by the Baltimore Ravens over the Colts. Minnesota Vikings taking on the Green Bay Packers in Green Bay. Minnesota is even a nine-point favorite in that one. Who do you like in that? Give me Minnesota. I mean, Aaron Rodgers is not playing. They're going back to Brett Hundley, who he played well in Aaron Rodgers' absence, but the Vikings are a team that's on a roll. Um, this is a team that's getting ready for a playoff run. Um, they're gearing up for that playoffs. You know, they're motivated. The Super Bowl is going to be in their home building if they were to make it that far. Um, so if you're the Vikings, they're just clicking on all cylinders. There's no reason to believe that Green Bay is going to wake up now and take down the Vikings. Yeah, this this should be an easy win for the Minnesota Vikings. Aaron Rodgers not in the game. The Green Bay Va- uh, Packers are essentially eliminated from the playoffs. They're seven to seven. They're just playing uh, to see if they may get to five hundred or they go under five hundred this season. Uh, it should be an easy win for the Minnesota Vikings. However, on a spread standpoint, I'm taking the Packers. I know it sounds surprising, but. Just the division matchup, it should be a lot closer in that scenario. And, you know, Brett Hundley has looked pretty well at quarterback when he was starting. So I, I like the matchup in that scenario. I think you could expect him to put up 20 points against the Minnesota Vikings. It should be a closer game, but ultimately the Vikings should have the win. Uh, the Detroit Lions taking on the Cincinnati Bengals. Detroit's going to need to get this win in order to keep their playoff hike, uh, hopes I guess alive, it's going to be really tough. But, Jose, who do you have in this one? I'm actually going to take the Bengals in this one. I don't trust the Lions when it matters the most sometimes. Uh, like you said, they need, to, they need to win to keep their playoff hopes alive, and I don't think they get it done. Um, I think the Bengals at this point, they know they're out of it. Uh, Marvin Lewis is probably going to be out of a job at the end of the year. I think he's resigning or stepping down. Should have been fired two years ago, but whatever. Who knows? Maybe that will spark the team to actually do something and win this ballgame. But give me the Bengals over the Lions. Um, I love Matthew Stafford. I think he's one of the better QBs in the game. But I, don't, I just don't trust this team when it matters the most, honestly. So I'm going to take the reverse sentence on that because if there's one team I don't trust offensively, it's the Cincinnati Bengals. This team has just been utterly disappointing all year long. The, it, it's a complete joke on what Cincinnati has been these last few years. Detroit should win this game, even the road game. I'll take Matthew Stafford and my chances on that one. How about the L.A. Chargers going to... The New York Jets, the Chargers, a seven-point favorite having to go from west to coast to an east coast game, and it being you know, a one o'clock game as well. Who do you like in this one? I like the Chargers in this, and Chargers in this one, surprisingly. You know, their playoffs hope is still alive. They're trying to win out and try and get that division um, in the AFC West. It's still very doable for them, so they, you know, they have a shot. They're playing a Jets team that's played well this year, but I believe there's no Josh McCowan this week. So I think that's significantly um, going to hurt the Jets offensively. 
and nothing against Petty or Hackenbush or whatever his name is, but they just haven't gotten the reps in this year. And I think that the offense was clicking mostly because of the chemistry between Josh McCowan and his receivers. McCowan doesn't play. I don't see the Jets clicking like they usually do. So give me the Chargers in this one. Yeah, same thing. No Josh McCowan, no chance for the New York Jets. Chargers, they, and Phillip Rivers, even though he's a San Diego, he plays extremely well in cold weather, winning late ball games in December. I'll take his. I'll take the Chargers in this one. I don't think it gives them enough chance to make the playoffs, though. But I think the Chargers will pick up the win against the Jets. Big matchup here for the Tennessee Titans. They're home against the Los Angeles Rams, and the Rams a six and a half point favorite over the Titans in this matchup. Who do you like here? You know, give me the Rams in this one. Um, I would like to see the Titans make the playoffs, only because they're a team that's you know they're really on the up and coming. I love Marcus Mariota. I think he's a good kid, good QB. And, you know, this is a team that, you know, they're rebuilding, they're rebuilding. They're on the cusp of making the playoffs, and you want to see them break through and kick down the door and get in with Mariota actually playing. Um, last year, Mariota gets hurt, and their chances were pretty much shot in the foot. But I, I like the Rams better in this one. I think the Rams' defense is too good. Um, and sometimes Mariota doesn't always have the best options to throw to. I think this defense can shut down the run game as well, too. And Mariota's really going to have to do things on his own, which is never really a good sign, as we've seen in the past couple of games. And the Titans' defense, they've had their moments, but they've been struggling as well all year long, too, to, to play consistent football. And Todd Gurley coming off a four-touchdown performance. Jared Goff could have his way with this defense if he wants to. I just think all signs point towards the Rams in this one. Now, you look at it and say, Tennessee Titans lost two weeks ago to the Arizona Cardinals in Arizona, 12-7. to Arizona doesn't have an offense. Decent defense. They lose on the road to the San Francisco 49ers, 25-23. San Francisco, better offense than the Cardinals, not a good defense at all. And the Rams, a much better team than both of those teams. I'm taking the Rams easily on this one. I think you could see this being easily a double-digit score by the Los Angeles Rams, even in a road matchup that's a must-win for the Tennessee Titans. It just doesn't seem like the Titans have wanted to win these last few weeks, and it's been the reason why they've fallen behind out of the division and could even fall out, like you said, of the playoffs when you talked about their matchups between having to take on the Rams and the Jaguars. I'm taking the Rams in this one. Uh, how about the no-care game? In Chicago, the Bears taking on the Cleveland Browns. The Bears a six-and-a-half-point favorite. Jose, can the Browns get their first win? Give me the upset special, Nick. The Browns will win their first game of the year. They came so close last week. They let me down because they let Devontae Adams catch that monster pass. Or that was two weeks ago, actually. But anyways, the Browns get their first and only win of the year, most likely, this week. Mark my words. Uh, in, in the no-care game, I'm giving it to the Chicago Bears. The home team will get the win. Bears seem to just play better at home. Uh, this is what I'm not betting on. In a spread of a six and a half, yeah... If you're going to bet, bet against the Cleveland Browns. They never cover their spreads, but it's not a safe one to look at. The Bears have lost six out of their last seven football games, and the Browns have lost every one of their football games this year. The Carolina Panthers in Carolina against the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Carolina is a 10-point favorite. If they can win, they'll get into the playoffs. Jose, does Carolina clinch a playoff spot with the win? Yes, they do. Um, this defense steps up always when it matters the most. 
Um, the Buccaneers have been really disappointing this year. Deshaun Jackson has had a really disappointing year. Mike Evans has had a really disappointing year. Um, Winston, too. You know, he spent some time on the injury list, so maybe that's a big reason for it. Doug Martin's still not playing, I believe. Um, so, you know, the Buccaneers don't have a lot of their best options on the field, um, whether they're actually healthy or not. Um, and I think this Panthers defense is cruising. I think they're very confident. A lot of people didn't have them making it this far in the season. A lot of people didn't have them making the playoffs. And I think they've taken a lot of pleasure in proving a lot of people wrong and making sure that they make the playoffs again for Carolina. Tampa Bay won, lost by three points to the Atlanta Falcons in Monday night. A lot of that had to do because of penalties by the silly penalties by the Atlanta Falcons that just continued gains and continued drives, and that resulted in Tampa Bay scoring points. That's not going to happen this week. Carolina played extremely well against the Green Bay Packers, a much better offense when you talk about even a banged-up Aaron Rodgers. I think Carolina goes out. They know their job, that if they win this week, they can put themselves in a great position to win the division, not just a wild-card spot. Carolina should win this game easily and covers that 10-point spread when you're talking about playing their division rival at home. How about we stay with the NFC South? The New Orleans Saints are a five-and-a-half-point favorite in New Orleans versus the Atlanta Falcons. Atlanta, although they're in a situation where they have the worst record among their two other division opponents, the Carolina Panthers and the New Orleans Saints, the Fountains can easily win this division with winning out against both of those teams. So, Jose, in the big matchup this week, who do you have, the Saints or the Fountains? Uh, give me the Saints in this one, actually. I mean, the Falcons barely beat them uh, the last time they played on Thursday night. I'm still holding a grudge against Matt Ryan. No, nothing personal. Um, but on a side note, I just think the Saints are a little bit well-equipped to win this game. I'm finally starting to believe in New Orleans, even though they lost that game against Atlanta. I think they have, um, you know, they showed me something in that game. And seeing Alvin Kamara get back on track last week was a huge uh, deal for the Saints. I think the Saints take this one and probably the division when it's all said and done, too. Yeah, no Kamara was a big reason why New Orleans really struggled in that one. We saw so many players on New Orleans Saints leave that Thursday night football game early. Another big part that Atlanta was able to get the win, they were home in that one. I'm taking a home team, the New Orleans Saints. I even like the Saints on the spread. I know five and a half can seem like a lot in a tough division matchup right here. But again, Kamara, I think, is a big reason why you have to look at this as a really safe bet with the New Orleans Saints, even in a tough matchup because of the fact that New Orleans' offense has been so great when he's on the field. How about another no-care game in Washington versus the Denver Broncos? Jose, who do you have this one? Uh, I might be sleeping, so I don't even know if I'm going to even care about this game. But no, um, in all seriousness, I'm probably going to give it to Denver. Because, um, you know, why not? <laughs> I'm taking the Washington. That's my reasoning. I'm saying why not. <laughs> West Coast traveling, East Coast never did, puts you in a good part. It's a 1 o'clock game. Give me the Washington Redskins. They're the better team. Three and a half point spread. I think they'll cover it. I, it all depends what Denver defense shows up, but ultimately, I think Washington's going to pick up this win. Kansas City, in Kansas City, a ten and a half point favorite. One of the highest spreads of the week against the Miami Dolphins. If Kansas City can pick up the win, they'll clinch the AFC West. Jose, do they pick up the win this week? Give me Jay Cutler and the Miami Dolphins. They're coming off a huge win over the Patriots on Monday Night Football. That defense looked incredible. Um, this Dolphins 
defense, they're, they, they're pretty much a lot like the Denver Broncos in a way, where they're Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. You don't know which defense is going to show up in what week. And Jay Cutler did look pretty good his last time out, too. Now, again, um, I'm sorry. I'm thinking about two weeks ago, probably, when they beat the Patriots. Yes. My mistake. Yeah. Um, but either way, I still have the Dolphins coming out and winning against the Chiefs. The Dolphins are pretty much out of it. So I think they're enjoying playing the role of spoiler. And a lot of guys on that team still have a lot to prove in terms of if they're going to be on the roster next year, most likely. Keep your eye on Kenyon Drake. I think he's phenomenal. And I give the Dolphins uh, spoiling it for the Chiefs and keeping the Chargers alive for another week. Yeah, it really seems like both of these teams have the same type of game plan that we're seeing. And it's used the running back. Drake has been extremely effective these last few weeks for the Miami Dolphins. 120 rushing yards, 114 rushing yards, and 78 rushing yards and a touchdown. And even last week's game against Buffalo, he also had a ton of targets, 11 targets in the game for 35 yards. So he's averaging over 100 points, 100 total yards in each of the last three games. This is a guy they're going to bid time. I think you also saw that by the Kansas City Chiefs. They finally got back to their original game plan, which helped them win those first couple games of the season, which is used Kareem Hunt. So this is going to be a big running game. It's going to be which running back can take the real advantage. I'm ultimately going to give it to Kansas City on the win, but however, I'm looking at Miami on the spread. Ten and a half points is a lot for Kansas City and Alex Smith to cover. This team really hasn't been blowing out teams. I'm not looking at that Saturday win against the Chargers as a consistency factor on a ten-point spread. I'm looking at that as an exception. The uh, Kansas City has played great against their division, Outside of the division, they've really struggled. I think they'll get the win, but certainly not covering the spread. And we both have Miami on that spread. It's that Jose's got Miami in the win. One of the few times he's ever trusting Jay Cutler. How about the my New boy Jay Cutler? Yeah. <laughs> How about the New England Patriots in New England? A twelve-point spread favorite against the Buffalo Bills. Jose, who do you like in this one? I actually think this is going to be a lot closer game than people think. Again, I think the Bills are playing with a lot of confidence. Um, I think they're going to be able, you know, in their mind, they're going to think that they can beat the Patriots. I will give it to the Patriots, um, but I think they win this game by a touchdown and maybe no more than that, honestly. Yeah, the Bills seem to consistently struggle mightily against the New England Patriots. I'm expecting that to continue. New England won by 20 in the game in Buffalo against the Bills. It's about the same type of outcome. I love the spread against New England, and normally I stay away from New England when it comes to spreads because they get over-the-top spreads that they just don't cover. But against the Buffalo Bills, the Bills never seem to show up against New England. It's about the same outcome this week as New England gets one step closer to clinching the number one seed in the AFC. They easily cover a 12-point spread over the Buffalo Bills. The Jacksonville Jaguars traveling to the San Francisco 49ers Jimmy Garoppolo has looked extremely well since being traded to the 49ers. Who do you got in this one? Actually, give me the 49ers. Again, I really do like um, Garoppolo and the way that he's played. Um, this is a guy that's won his first five starts as a starter, I believe, going back to his two starts with New England. And I just think that ever since he's taken over, you know, there's a there's a bit of swagger on that team now. They're like they're confident they have a real QB now um, behind the line of scrimmage. So give me the 49ers again. I think they look they look vastly improved. Um, you know, you actually have a QB that's buying in to Kyle Shanahan's offensive game plan. So give me the 49ers in this one. Yeah, 49ers have won three games in a row. You look at the teams they beat, the Bears, the Houston Texans, and the Tennessee Titans. 
I'm taking the Jacksonville Jaguars, but this could be the ultimate payday decision when it comes to Jimmy Garoppolo. I mean, you're talking about a guy that's won multiple games with the San Francisco 49ers. He was fantastic. Taking on what looks like the Jacksonville Jaguars as a number one defense, if he's able to play extremely well against the Jaguars defense or even pull out the win, you're talking about an ultimate payday come free agency, and you're looking at 18, 20, maybe even more per year for him. Uh, overall, though, Jacksonville's looked great these last few weeks. It seems like every random person on the team is catching or running it in for a touchdown. I'm taking the Jaguars in this, a four-point spread, even with the 49ers doing well. I'll take the number one defense every single time. The Arizona Cardinals... At home, a three-and-a-half-point spread favorite against the New York Giants. Jose, do you have your favorite team winning this game? I do not because they are the New York Giants. No, I mean, um, you know, this is a team that I don't know if Landon Collins is going to be healthy enough to start. I know he left last week's game as well, too, um, with that same ankle injury. So who knows what's up in the air with that. The Giants are officially a team that's going to play three-quarters very well and then crap out in the fourth. Um, I just I think they're... I think the season's over for the Giants, and they're mailing it in. So give me the Cardinals over the Giants. You know, this is one of those games where it's three and a half points. You think it's one of those closer matchups. This is a, one of those I don't touch games. You just don't trust either one of these teams. I'm going to take the New York Giants just because Arizona just looks completely lost right now. But certainly so. I could easily see either one of these teams winning this game. I'm just going to take the Giants because Giants are one of my favorite teams, and... That's about all I got for this one. Uh, not that I'm hoping the Giants win this. I'd rather the Giants stay at the two seed at the moment and lose this football game much more than win over the Arizona Cardinals. How about a really tough matchup here in Dallas versus the Seattle Seahawks? A five-point spread here. Dallas favored. Who do you have in this one? Uh, give me Dallas in this one, honestly. I think Dallas, um, you know, they're very motivated. Uh, their playoffs hopes are still alive. And at the end of the day, I think, you know, they're going to get Zeke back soon. And Dallas has to win if they want to keep continuing this throughout the um, – for their playoff hopes. You know, yes, they need Detroit to lose. And they need the Falcons and the Panthers, I believe, to lose both of their games. So it's a stress for Dallas. But I, don't, I think it's very doable at the same time too. Yeah, I believe Elliott may be back this week uh, as well. And, uh, it's just one of those scenarios where I just don't trust the Seattle Seahawks offensively, they just have no running game. They just look lost out there at times. It's all on Russell Wilson. I think Dallas can be good enough defensively at home to contain Russell Wilson, especially if you look at how the Rams did it. You try and match that up as good as you can, and you can pull out this win. I don't know if that gives Dallas enough hopes to get into the playoffs. They still need a lot to happen in order to get into the playoffs, but for starters, they need to beat the Seattle Seahawks, and at home, they should be able to do that. I'm taking Dallas, and I'm taking the five points as well in that spread. The Pittsburgh Steelers on Monday Christmas taking on the Houston Texans in Houston. Pittsburgh's a nine-and-a-half-point favorite in this matchup. Who do you like? Well, I mean, usually I wouldn't choose Pittsburgh, especially when Antonio Brown is missing. Um, but it's against the Houston Texans. This is a team that has very little to play for. Their defense took a major hit ever since J.J. Watt went down. And I think this is a game where you're going to see the Steelers use Le'Veon Bell, but they're also going to throw a lot to Smith-Schuster. Um, I think Smith-Schuster is going to have a huge game as well, too. 
Um, so as long as they get Antonio Brown back at some point in the playoffs, the Steelers should be fine. Um, but I don't worry about them losing to the Texans, at least on Monday. Yeah, this is just one of those simple ones where Pittsburgh should usually win this game. Houston just lost without Deshaun Watson. Their season is over, and it should be an easy win for the Pittsburgh Steelers. They're going to have to win this game because you figure New England's going to win, and they just got to try and play out for a two-seed. And lastly, in Philadelphia, taking on the Oakland Raiders, can the, the Eagles get the win? They're a nine-point favorite with Nick Foles. Do you trust Nick Foles enough? I do. I, I mean, I, again, I, at first when Carson Wentz went down, I was thinking, eh, you know, this is a game where, you know, Carson Wentz is out now that Philadelphia Eagles, their Super Bowl chances are done. You can forget they're going to be a first-round exit in the playoffs. But when you look deeper into the numbers, like we discussed before, Nick Foles is a good quarterback. He's a starting NFL quarterback that, you know, wound up back in Philadelphia when they drafted Carson Wentz, and Carson Wentz took off. Um, I'm not going to be surprised if Nick Foles ends up with a starting job somewhere else in the upcoming years, but Nick Foles can get the job done. I trust him enough to finish the season out and be in contention to win a playoff game. Again, I'm not saying that they're going to make a run and win the Super Bowl still, but for the Eagles, you can survive when Nick Foles is your quarterback. Yeah, this is one where it should be the Eagles getting the win. It's a West Coast dream, traveling East Coast on Christmas. It's a night game that gives Oakland a little bit more of an advantage than a 1 o'clock game, but I'm still taking the Eagles. They just have been the better team this season all around. And I, this is one where, again, it's going to come off on if Foles struggles then it's more to be a lot more Eagles panic mode. But if he's able to have a strong game like he did against the Giants, doesn't mean he has to throw four touchdowns. But if he just continues drives, if he puts up points, whether it's field goals or touchdowns, and you can trust in him and the offense, it's going to look like more of a confident moment on that moment. I'm taking the Eagles with that. Uh, as well, with all of our shows on Sarasso and the Beard, we have our Dude and Dunce of the Week, and we go with Beardback as well. And we'll start with Beardback as we look back in sports history on December 22nd. And in 1962, the 1 millionth NBA point was scored during that season. Now you figure it'd be a lot more than a million, especially with there being more teams and teams putting up consistently averaging 100 points per night. It's a lot quicker to get up there. But in 1962, at a combined point, the 1 millionth point was scored in NBA history. In 1974, Phil Esposito of the Boston Bruins became the sixth NHL player to score 500 goals, and he scored all 504 the Boston Bruins, and in 2003, how about a New York Knicks one? They hire Isaiah Thomas as president of basketball operations for the team, and that was back on December 22nd. Of course, it's been a lot of hectic things when it comes to the New York Knicks, and Isaiah Thomas didn't really have too much of a too many good moves or too many great or bad moves also, but it was one of those ones that stood out to me when looking it up on December 22nd. So those are your three beard bats as we look back in sports history. And of course, following that is our dude and dunce of the week. And for me, dude of the week has to go to 
last night's game with the Toronto Raptors, DeMar DeRozan, 45 points, 5 rebounds, 3 assists in the 114-109 to win as he had a huge game and easily wins his first Dude of the Week. And Jose, who is our Dunce of the Week? The Dunce of the Week is every NBA team besides the Los Angeles Lakers. And no, it's not for drafting Lonzo Ball, but it's for drafting Kyle Kuzma, who is proving to be the steal of the draft class, honestly. This kid is lighting it up. And if it wasn't for Ben Simmons, who's beasting, obviously, I would think Kyle Kuzma would be a favorite to win Rookie of the Year. This kid's putting up 30 points, anywhere from 20 to 30 points a night. He is on, he is on fire. And to think that he was drafted with the Brooklyn Nets pick, remember that pick went to the Lakers in the Brook Lopez trade, is also a slap in the face for every Brooklyn fan out there. But the fact that maybe they could have gotten Kyle Kuzma. But so be it. Kyle Kuzma is lighting it up for the Lakers. And when they drafted him in Lonzo Ball, you know, obviously all the attention was on Ball because of the big name, because of his father and all that. But Kyle Kuzma is turning in a great rookie season so far. It's only December, so still a lot of season left to go. But Kyle Kuzma already proving to be the steal of the NBA draft. And for our final thoughts, we just want to wish everybody a happy holidays, Merry Christmas, and as well as Christmas coming on Monday. And don't go too far from Sarasso and the Beard because next week we are coming out with episode 18. And a big part of that conversation is going to be talking about college football, Georgia playing Oklahoma, Alabama playing Clemson, who we have winning those games as that will be on January 1st, those games being played. And we'll be talking about that during the week, uh, probably in between Christmas and New Year's, most likely we'll be figuring out a day, but I would say around like the 27th or 28th, we'll be coming out with our episode 18 podcast. So I'm certainly looking forward to hearing Jose's pits on who he has winning those games as that will be interesting. And as always, we'll always be able to be on Twitter at Sarasso underscore the beard, where you can message us any questions. And if you do, We'll certainly put them on our podcast, what your questions are. And as always, thank you for listening. As once again, I am Nick Sarasso. And I'm talking beard, Jose Rivera. And you have been listening to Sarasso and the Beard Podcast, episode 17. Thank you for listening.